being on. Okay, we're, we're on. Uh, it is a pleasure to introduce my guest for today's podcast, Dr. Douglas H. Ingram. Dr. Ingram is an experienced psychiatrist and psychoanalyst who has been one of the outstanding leaders in American psychiatry. Dr. Ingram did his undergraduate degree at Columbia University in New York City. He attended medical school at New York University and did his internship and psychiatric residency at St. Vincent's Hospital and Medical Center, also in New York City. He then studied psychoanalysis at the Karen Horney Institute for Psychoanalysis in New York, where he was certified in psychoanalysis in 1974. Five years after completing his training at the Horney Institute, he became the medical director and chairman of the medical board of the Karen Horney Clinic. Dr. Ingram is also on the faculty of the Psychoanalytic Institute of the Department of Psychiatrists and Behavioral Sciences of New York Medical College, and he is currently clinical professor of psychiatry at this institution. Dr. Ingram is also an expert in, in law and psychiatry. He is a life fellow of the American Psychiatric Association and is past president of the American Academy of Psychoanalysis and Dynamic Psychiatry. He has written numerous publications and has made many presentations on a variety of subjects, some of which I hope we can talk about today. Welcome to the Psychiatry Talk podcast, Dr. Ingram. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I often like to start off my interview by asking, what made you decide to become a psychiatrist? I've always been interested in what it means to be a person. And at the same time, I've always been challenged by the issues that we face as people with physical illness and mental illness. And so the combination of the intricacies and the bewilderment of personhood along with the matter of mental illness drove me to medicine and then to psychiatry. It sounded like you knew you were going to be a psychiatrist from when you started medical school. May have been, but actually I put psychiatry aside, but only came back to it after I realized really how very much my interest in the matter of personhood and the bewildering mysteries of being a person uh, claimed me. Okay, and was there any special reason that led you to study psychoanalysis? Psychiatry on its own struck me as rather, as rather, rather uh, uninteresting until we get into the issue of the mind. And the best way, in my experience, uh, to understand how our minds operate is through psychoanalysis. Psychiatry alone does not deal adequately with matters of the mind. Is there a way that you could, uh, in case people are not familiar with the exact definition of psychoanalysis, give us a little sense of what psychoanalysis is, as let's say, compared to psychiatry itself? Well, sure. Psychiatry <clears throat> deals with the vast issues involved in mental health. Psychoanalysis explores the experience that we have, conscious and unconscious, which actually contribute to our sense of selfhood, to our sense of relationship. And so psychoanalysis gives us a means to explore the depths 
of experience of existence. Now, now you've spent many years as a student and as a teacher at the Karen Horney Institute. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the contributions made by Karen Horney. Well, Karen Horney departed from Freud in that she saw <clears throat> how much cultural issues participated in the development of how we think about ourselves and how we think about each other. So she developed a position which held that we need to understand the society we live in. And that to me was very important. I mean, the specifics of Karen Horney's uh, contributions we can go into if you like, but that was the primary issue that she presented and that she put before all of us in psychoanalysis. Eventually, psychoanalysts of every stripe came to find her contributions of value. And, and how have her theories and teachings held up over the years? Well, they've held up so well. Uh, there are so many different ways that we can explore what it is to be a person, how we deal with the bewilderment and the mysteries of our existence. But her ideas have held, at least for me and for many others, a, a crucial place in that understanding. Uh-huh. And uh, in, in what ways uh, do her ideas and theories differ from the traditional Freudian views? I think the traditional Freudian views, which re regarded biology as the basis, <clears throat> have probably changed. I think that traditional Freudians have probably moved much more in the direction that Horney established well over 50 years ago. Uh, so she said things are really much more sociologic, much more societally uh, based. The attitudes that we have, that we inherit, that we learn from our families, from our peers, are much more likely to affect us than some underlying biological instinct. Mm -hmm. Will a horny analyst look at dreams, for example? Of course. Uh -huh. Dreams, after all, are the repositories of what occurs each day and the essential aspects of who we are as individuals. Our character structures emerge in our dreams, the issues we face, the conflicts, the areas of bewilderment that we uh, encounter, they all come through in our dreams. And uh, now, Karen Horney's daughter, Marianne Eckhart, was a prominent psychoanalyst who died this past year, uh, and many of us knew her. She was connected with the American uh, Academy of Psychoanalysis and Dynamic Psychiatry, as are you and I. Did you get to know her very well, and can you talk about her contributions to the profession? Marianne Eckhart was a remarkable person, and we miss her. She she had a very humanistic attitude about psychoanalysis and about, about psychiatry more generally. And every once in a while, I would find myself wondering, am I going a little bit too far? Am I being a little bit too warm and cuddly? Am I being too uh, formal? Uh, and, and I would find that speaking with her would enliven my sense of the humanity that underlies psychoanalysis. I knew her fairly well. I wish I knew her better. 
But she has been a very strong influence in the academy and for me and others uh, in, in un- underscoring the humanism that we rely on in our work. Yes, I certainly share your uh, thoughts about her. She was a very warm person. As you reflect back in providing psychiatric care for at least four decades, how would you describe the changes, the major changes that you've seen? It's a big question, Michael. I must say, you know, when I came into the field, psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic therapy was really at its peak. And, uh, and, and I loved it. I did. I did. And over the years, certain other kinds of approaches, such as psychopharmacology and cognitive behavioral therapy and other, other kinds of approaches to how to uh, approach issues that people face, began to take hold. And I regret, I regret that the field has moved away from the psychoanalytic perspective, because after all, speaking who we are, speaking and discovering more of who we are as we speak to the analyst, is something that I value so very much. And these other approaches, although they have value, do not really rise to the level of interest that psychoanalytic thinking has for me. Do do patients come for treatment with you today for different reasons than they did in the past? I can't say that they do, actually. People come with the same problems. But one thing that I come to recognize is that many people come with symptoms, with complaints, depression, anxiety, specific problems, relationships. Uh, How are they going to get along with their children, with their spouses, with their parents? But very often what I find is that these complaints are very often rather like tickets of admission to the wonderful world that psychoanalytic therapy can offer. Because really what they want, but don't know really quite how to say it, how to make it legitimate, what they want is to be able to talk about what's in their minds. They want to have a way to express themselves in the deepest sense of who they are. That's very well put. Um, As a psychiatrist, I assume you prescribe medications as well as doing talk therapy. Have the newer medications made a big difference in your approach to your treatment with patients? In a very practical sense, yes, they have. I, uh, I very often prescribe medications which can be remarkably alleviating for those with specific kinds of issues, anxiety and depression, but ultimately the medications give us a a way to address these deeper issues of the mind that I care about and that my patients care about. And, And how do you handle a situation when a patient appears to be drinking a great deal or, or made you somebody that you see is definitely an alcoholic? Oh, well, you know, I, I cut you've answered hair. you've answered the question with your sound. <laughs> <laughs> I I must say I uh, I cut my teeth in psychiatry at the Manhattan Bowery Project working with alcoholics, and I've learned a lot about how they uh, how they think and how they feel, and I and I I have developed a way for 
addressing their issues. They know that they're drinking too much. They don't need me to tell them. That's my experience. Those that do need to be told are generally told by their spouses or by their children or by their parents. In any event, they, if they come to me, they already are fully aware, well, nearly fully aware that they have a problem. Can, can you do ongoing analysis if somebody continues to be an alcoholic or continues to drink heavily on a regular basis? No way. No way. Mm -hmm. I, uh, <clears throat> I get very down and dirty with the, the issues. Uh, any kind of the, any of the addictions, any of the substance abuses uh, have to be addressed before we can look meaningfully into the intricacies of a person's thinking. And I assume it is completely compatible with you if while they're in treatment with you, they're also attending AA meetings? Right. You know, yes. <clears throat> many states now are legally legalizing various forms of marijuana. Do you have any feelings about this change in the legal uh, status of this substance? Actually, Michael, I, I applaud the legalization and the recreational use of marijuana. But as with so much else, moderation is the key. When it goes too far, then it becomes a problem. And I think that those who use marijuana in a careful way uh, are, 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 are doing all right by themselves. As far as the issue of legalization goes, I think it's okay. But uh, uh, we have to keep an eye on it in the same way that we keep an eye on alcohol use. Uh, and what would you do uh, if a patient told you that he or she drove to your office while they were stoned? I tell them not to come anymore if they're going to do that. I what, cannot tolerate. What's, your, cannot what's tolerate. the reason? Why, why would you reject them rather than try to help them? Well, by rejecting them or telling them that I would be rejecting them, I am putting down a very strong marker. Uh, and hopefully they will recognize that this is not acceptable. I will not have them coming to me if they are stoned either on alcohol or marijuana or anything else. I live in New York and my practice is on the Upper East Side. So people who come to me don't drive. <laughs> that, that's true. <clears throat> it's a little different than out here in Los Angeles, where just about everybody uh, comes to their therapist by driving. Um, a, a while back, uh, you were involved in the landmark, a landmark case as you had to take a legal action related to one of your patients. That was a, a well-known a very important case in, in, in American psychiatry. Can you describe that situation and how you handled it and the implications to our profession? I can, I can give you a, a glimpse into the issues. And, uh, and so the case, the case involved a doctor who came to see me because uh, he wanted help he wanted to become a psychoanalyst and so he came into a training analyst with, to, into a training analysis in order to find out how uh, how he thought and into the work he became interested in uh, finally divulging to me that he had a, a, a sexual attraction to boys 
And so I was faced with the question of what do I do with this? How strong is a sexual attraction? Will he act on it? Will he not act on it? Is it a fantasy? This was to young, this was to young boys, right? Young boys, yes, yes. yes. Uh, prepubescent boys. Right. So after talking with him further about it and telling him that this is not only illegal but, but unethical in the strictest way, in my view, you must not act on it, and he agreed. But then some time later, he acted on it and he was arrested. The case was whether or not I had an obligation to tell uh, who, I, I never really found out who, uh, who this doctor, this licensed doctor, um, uh, might, uh, uh, well, might molest. So my idea was to work with him, and only if he told me something more specific to do something about it. But in the absence of that, I had no one to tell. And so the case had to do with the extent to which I had a, a, a requirement, an obligation to protect all of the young children, all the young boys in the tri-state area, New York, Connecticut, and New Jersey. And of course, since that was impossible, my choice was to work with him. And of course, I received consultation from all sides on how to proceed. And I did what I was what was recommended to me. It was a tough case. Was there any precedent established as a result of that case? I think that it contributed to an existing uh, a, a case law established earlier by, uh, by this famous Tarasov case, which had to do with the extent to which psychiatrists and therapists more generally have a duty to warn patients or, or to warn others that they are seeing a patient who might attack them, molest them, assault them, hurt them. So in other words, the, the conclusion of the, of the legal action was that if a psychiatrist knows that their patient is endangering somebody, they're obligated to uh, inform the authorities who might inform that, that person or inform that person directly? More or less, yes, yes. But it continues to be a collision of duties, as I call it, because on one hand, we have a duty to the patient to hear the patient and to understand uh, what his, what's passing in his mind. And on the other hand, we have a duty to uh, protect the, uh, the, the population, to, pe to, to protect those around them. So we have to make a decision. And sometimes we like to think we can make that decision wisely but we can never be sure that we're making the right one, whether to tell and protect the public or to protect the patient's confidentiality and treat the patient. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sure we could talk for hours about this subject. This is, uh, is one that psychiatrists and other mental health professionals frequently discuss and, and debate. Um, there's another area that you've written about that's uh, somewhat uh, controversial and certainly very interesting. You've, you've written and spoken about situations where psychiatrists are stalked. Can you describe how that might come about and what, what do psychiatrists or what should psychiatrists or any therapist do to handle that kind of a situation? Oh. You're, you're, you're handing me some very difficult questions. 
the the likelihood that a person is going to be stalked in the general population is about one in twenty. Really, the, like, really. the likelihood that a that a uh, psychiatrist, not only a psychiatrist, uh, OBGYNs uh, also are subject to a high level of stalking. So a psychiatrist has a one in five chance of being stalked. And in addition to that, can you excuse me? Can you define stalked? Stalking is defined in various ways, but the uh, the general the general definition that's used by uh, uh, the, the United States Criminal Code, as I understand it, is receiving the unwanted uh, attention from uh, from an individual where there's a, a threat of uh, a threat of uh, of aggression of assault. Or even nowadays, with the uh, with the presence of internet stalking, uh, with looking into more deeply who a person is, what the person's private life consists of. So it's changed with the onset, uh, with the availability of, of internet. Well, that that certainly is um, is interesting because, of course, uh, part of the psychoanalytic treatment relies on the fact that the patient really doesn't know too much about the therapist and is able to project their own inner workings onto the therapist, and that becomes one of the tools that we often use. Yes, the, uh, the fact is that a, uh, a tech-savvy patient who is interested in who we are and just because a patient may be tech savvy doesn't mean that they're going to look into our who we are, uh, but they can. And I've seen this; it's been reported to me. Uh, patients can find out everything about us, almost uh, almost beyond belief. And uh, and yet, I'm, I I I believe that the transference that patients have to us is not radically impaired by Patients who do this, patients will imbue us with character characteristics, even if they know a great deal about us. The issue is whether or not the patients have the trust in us to tell us that they have looked us up on Google and wherever else. And do you do you feel that most patients can tell you this, and that uh, it can, you can bring it out in the therapy? Oh. What I do when a patient comes to see me is I invite them to look me up on the internet and to let them and to let me know if there's anything that strikes them. And in that way I I anticipate that they're gonna do that and I make it easier for them to be able to tell me what they find. Hmm. So this modern uh, technique and this modern uh, technology becomes a, a very important part of your work with the patient. It, it's come in in a way that I uh, <clears throat> never have expected. But yes, uh, we use, we have to be able to manage what we do with the internet. Uh, and of course, the technical advances that we've explored, that we've uh, 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 uncovered over the years, have allowed us 
to use a lot of a lot of things. I use an iPad to take notes, whereas years ago I used a steno pad. Mm -hmm. Now, now uh, I know you've made several presentations concerning how therapists might feel working with spouses who have chronic illnesses. Can you elaborate on this situation? The the, the issues faced by spouses whose uh, partners have chronic illnesses, <clears throat> which I want to distinguish from, uh, from issues involving dementia. Um, the loss of a spouse through dementia creates a kind of ambiguous loss because the person is there, but they're not responding cognitively or emotionally as they had. And so there's a gradual sense of loss of, of the partner. And that happens to be quite different from the spouse who comes to see me because their, uh, their partner has become um, physically disabled, can't do what they used to do, but they're still there. They're still emotionally, cognitively present. And so what we've discovered is how very different those two kinds of disabilities can be. And the loss of the spouse to dementia is far more tragic and distressing. Mm -hmm. I, I know. <clears throat> I know you've also been interested in addressing the well-being of mental health therapists. Are there uh, specific mental health issues which the therapists, uh, which therapists in general, are prone to develop? And and does the mental health profession address this issue? Actually, I think that we as mental health professionals suffer from all the things that everybody else suffers from. What I think we like to believe is that because of our learning and our experience, we're better able than many people to say, oh, you know, I have this problem and this is how I think I might be able to handle it. But in truth, we're not all that good at it. And psychiatric associations, and I'll speak for psychiatric associations because the other mental health associations are not really very familiar to me, but psychiatric associations have not addressed the kinds of mental health needs that we face. And so at the Academy, the American Academy of Psychodynamic Psychiatry and Psychoanalysis, which I uh, uh, am a member of, has set up a, uh, uh, a psychiatrist well-being and support uh, aspect to its, uh, to its website so that now we are attempting to answer the kinds of questions that psychiatrists might have in terms of their mental well-being. And, uh, and so we include uh, different personal accounts, often anonymous of course, in which psychiatrists put forth how they encountered problems and how they dealt with it in order to help others who might look at the site to, uh, uh, to learn. So <clears throat> this becomes a self-help group uh, for our profession, um, which obviously is needed. Uh, now I, I want to ask you about one of my favorite contemporary topics. Uh, as you know, in the 1960s, <clears throat> when Barry Goldwater was running for president against Lyndon Johnson, a group of psychiatrists and other mental health professionals publicly spoke out 
stating that they felt that Goldwater showed evidence of being paranoid. Subsequently, the American Psychiatric Association amended the code of ethics of this organization, saying that psychiatrists should not publicly diagnose anyone whom they have not examined. Now, some psychiatrists disagree with this ruling and have even now publicly spoken out about the current president, who some people believe has characteristics of a narcissistic personality. Do you believe that psychiatrists should speak out if they have such strong views? Actually, uh, I do, but I agree with the earlier, the earlier decision. I do not think we should apply diagnoses, mental health, DSM-5 diagnoses to public officials. I think that if we haven't examined a person in a proper way, we should not make a diagnosis. However, the language that we use in psychiatry can be applied to character traits. And insofar as we are citizens with a right to, to speech, we want to be able to use that language. So, for example, if we say someone uh, has a narcissistic uh, issue, we want to be able to say that. We do not want to say that they have a narcissistic personality disorder. All we can say is that they are narcissistic without making the actual diagnosis. But don't you think that if a psychiatrist says it in his role as a psychiatrist, even if the psychiatrist acknowledges they have not examined that patient, it carries a certain uh, weight. It's almost like a diagnosis. If, if, if you speak out and say, uh, Dr. Ingram, prominent psychiatrist, thinks that this public figure has a narcissistic personality which can be dangerous, that um, that, that carries a, a certain weight uh, and reflects your professional standing. I think that you may be overstating the authority that we as psychiatrists bring to, uh, to this kind of analysis. I think that if, if a psychiatrist says so-and-so it has narcissistic traits. Yeah, okay, that's of interest. But you know, I don't think to that many people really care. Okay, so you think it's not going to sway the election? <laughs> no, I do not. Okay, I you know, I, you know, and finally, I, I know that uh, you've had some recent uh, publications where you've dealt with the issue of how and when a psychodynamic psychiatrist should or should not retire. Can you give a summary of your conclusions on this subject? And, um, and let me anticipate the, the, my next question, does this apply to you? In other words, uh, after you've described your views on this, tell us if you uh, look forward to retirement in the near or distant future. Well, psychiatrists, because we sit in our office and we listen and we can talk and we don't have to move around a great deal, we can, we can go on for quite a while as long as our thinking holds up. But if, if we're honest with ourselves and we begin to see ourselves, um, oh, sort of decline in that way where we can't really quite remember, even with, 
even with the notes that we might take in sessions, we just have to be able to have the wherewithal to, to say, you know, I think that it's time for me to take it easy. And I think actually most of us do that. Some do not. Uh, but when we do retire, um, we, we don't actually, in my experience and from the, uh, from the interviews that I've done, we don't actually miss it. We actually find that we are rich enough as individuals to be able to enjoy all that retirement can offer. And we, you know, we retire gradually because we work on an hour-by-hour hour basis, or at least those of us in private practice do. So we can begin to take it easy, whether it's physical illness, some kind of cognitive impairment, uh, or actually our families, our spouses might need us. So we begin to pull back. And I'm looking forward, actually, even as we're speaking, to taking it a little bit easier. I have a lot of interest and I'm looking forward to engaging with them more. Well, I certainly look forward to my... I'm, I'm just just wait for a second. This is what I told you about. So just give me a second and we'll conclude the interview. I'm sorry about this, Doug. I, first of all, I really enjoyed the interview. I think you did a, a wonderful job. It was really fantastic. Thank you. Thank you again. And, and uh, this is a new telephone. I haven't figured out how to, how to mask the whole thing when I get messages. So we were lucky. Michael, yeah. Michael, this, this is a wonderful example of how, of how modern technology <laughs> has come to our lives, and not always in the best way. Right. So I'll just give you a second, and I'll, I'll conclude the interview. <laughs> okay. I, uh, I hope the weather's good in New York right now and everything is uh, working well with you. Everything is good, and I'm, I'm enjoying this interview. Uh, okay, I'll have it out. I'll probably have it out in a in a couple of weeks. You know, it doesn't. I don't get around to editing it right away. Okay. Sure. Okay. Let me just conclude now. Well, I I certainly have appreciated. I certainly have appreciated the things that you've said, and I hope our, in fact, I'm sure our listeners have. And again, I want to thank you so much for joining me on this podcast, and I look forward to our future interactions together. Thank you again, thank Doug. You, Michael. It's been a pleasure speaking with you.